Um, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1 this morning. You can go ahead and open up to uh, starting in verse 26. You heard the, the passage read a little bit ago. We're going to jump into Mary's story uh, today. And so if you've been joining us for a little while recently, you kind of noticed we're deviating from our series on Romans. We're going to pause in Advent right now because this is where the big C universal church has been uh, for quite a while. But uh, this is a season of Advent, and we're going to take some time to press into the things that we should be listening to and paying attention to in this season. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, at all. This is a word that literally means the arrival of a notable person or thing. And that's exactly what we're doing in the Advent season. We are remembering the arrival of Jesus Christ, everything that his life, death, and resurrection first accomplished for us the first time that he came through. We're remembering that he's promised to come again. This time the Revelation talks about when he's going to come back again, he's going to make all things brand new. No more suffering, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. The old things will have passed away. Behold, new things will have come. And so in this Advent season, it is a season full of emotion, and we should engage in some of the emotion here. There's joy in the arrival of Christ because there's victory that's already been won for us through the gospel, and then there's a longing for his return again, this, and a remembrance that, hey, things are not as they should be quite yet, and that Christ is going to return again, and he's going to make things all brand new. And so there's joy on the one hand, and there's longing on the other, and my hope and my prayer for us as a church is that we're going to enter into this season and that we're going to go through both of these things. We're going to enter into the joy and we're going to enter into the longing of this season that we are in. And so, and I think that's what our, our story is going to help us with today. If you were with us last week, we jumped into Joseph's story and uh, we talked a little bit about the inconvenience of the Advent story and how the hope of Christ's divinity and the comfort of his humanity uh, can help us embrace the inconvenience and stay faithful today. And so we're going to jump into Mary's story today. And what I want to talk about specifically in Mary's story is the silence of God and really how you and I can uh, excel, our faith can excel in seasons of silence when it seems like God may be far away or that you're having a hard time hearing his voice or something like that. And so we're not talking about the good kinds of silence like you bring a newborn home and they just went down for a nap and maybe you get a little bit of, of rest and relaxation or a good vacation or something like that. We're talking about these agonizing times when we come before the Lord and when you may be crying out for deliverance or an answer to prayer. And it seems like all you keep getting back is just silence. I'll never forget in a number of uh, about four years ago, my dad had a triple bypass double valve replacement heart surgery. And uh, we were in the waiting room. It was supposed to be a process that, or a procedure that took about four to five hours in length. And I remember coming and, and just sitting in that waiting room, and we were praying and just saying, God, would you give us healing? Would you give him safety in this whole deliverance, in, in this whole surgery that was taking place? And we got to hour six, and there was no word. And we got to hour seven, and there was no word. And we got to eight, and nine, and ten, and going on 11 hours. And we heard no word from the doctor. We heard no relief, no anything. It was some of the most agonizing hours of my life sitting in that waiting room, waiting to find out if he was going to be okay. Church, like what do you do when it's not a waiting room, when that's the, your life? And it's not just hours, but it's an, an entire season of, of transition in a job. And you're kind of going, okay, Lord, where are you taking us? Where are you taking our family? Maybe you're in the pain of difficulty in a counseling situation. And you're praying, okay, God, would you bring healing and renewal to our marriage? And, and the answer hasn't quite yet come. How do you cling to faith in these seasons of silence? 
I think that's what Mary's going to help us with in our story today. So again, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Uh, if you remember from this whole story, like Mary is going to be the shining example of faith because you know from her story, she's getting an announcement from an angel here, and then she's going to go on to some incredibly agonizing years as she waits on God, and she waits on Jesus to grow up, and she's going to see Jesus come before the cross and be, be, before his accusers, and she's going to be saying, okay, God, why, 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 why? And she's only going to get this experience with the angel right here. And so, again, so let's just jump into that thing right there. If you're not familiar with the big story, I think it's important to understand that before we get to Luke chapter 1, um, there's been about 400 years of silence between God's last divine revelation with man and, and what we see here in Luke chapter 1. It's only the second time that we've heard from God in about 400 years. The first time, actually the beginning of this chapter here, uh, an angel's going to come to her, her cousin Elizabeth and announce another miraculous pregnancy. This is John the Baptist's parents. And so the angel's going to come and make an announcement right there. But this is really the first time that we've heard any divine revelation, uh, biblically speaking, in the past 400 years. And so if you remember from the Old Testament story, uh, it's, it's important to understand some of the things. I kind of put a timeline up there, and I think these are important dates to understand Old Testament history here. But it begins, you remember about somewhere around 445, uh, the Israelites are going to be returning from captivity. There's two major captivities to take place. The Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. That's going to be 722. Uh, the Babylonians are going to take over the southern kingdom in 605. That's going to be Daniel. They're going to be going away to Babylon. And so Israel's destroyed. The temple's going to be destroyed shortly after that. Uh, they're going to be living in captivity for about 70 years. And somewhere around 535 um, or 539, the Medes and the Persians are going to take over power. Cyrus is going to make a decree. The Israelites are now allowed to return home. And the reason that's significant, they start coming home, but it's not like home used to be, right? And so like the, the temple's been destroyed. It's now got all kinds of people who are not Israelites living in their home, living in their land. And for about 100 years, they're going to come back home, and they're going to try to reestablish right worship principles. Uh, Nehemiah is going to come back, and they're going to try to rebuild the city walls. They're going to try uh, to rebuild the temple at that time. And so for about 100 years, it's going to be going pretty good. They're going to be, God got their attention. They're coming back, and they're saying, okay, we understand, Father, what you're teaching us in the captivity. We will repent. We will return back to you again. And so for about 100 years, things are going really, really well until the next generation rises up and they go back to their idolatrous ways and start falling into the same practices of empty religiosity that they become so familiar with for so many years prior. And so Malachi is going to come on the scene, the last prophet. He's going to wrap up the Old Testament somewhere around 430. And uh, he's going to be calling the people to repent, which is what prophets do. You need to repent, return back to the Lord. He's going to actually prepare the way for the arrival of Christ. He's going to say there's going to be a prophet coming in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to make, way the way, he's going to make ready the way of the Lord. So he's going to say prepare for that. But then again, he's just going to say, hey, you need to repent. And then after that, that's going to be the last prophetic word and the last divine revelation we get until Luke chapter 1, roughly around 400 years of silence from God. So I want you to just, can you just imagine what that would be like, being an Israelite living in the first century? Being accustomed to hearing about the prophetic utterance that had guided the nation for such a long time. They didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. They didn't have God's word given to you that was accessible every single day of your life. They didn't have any of these things. It's just 400 years. Like, can you imagine what that would be like kind of going, okay, Father, like I know there was, a, there was judgment in the, in the exiles. We, we know there's judgment. Like what in the, have you abandoned us at this point in time? I almost wonder if a lot of times, I, I kind of wonder if they gotten used to his silence at some point. 
That had become so normative in their life, they forgot what the voice of the Lord sounded like. And they began to take for granted this intimate, close relationship that was once there with the previous fathers that they were longing for in this day. And so I just want you to see, like, that's what was taking place when the angel comes on the scene in Luke chapter 1. And so everything about this scene is really out of the blue. It's coming out of the blue. But what I want you to notice, I want you to hang on to what the angel says right here. Because what the angel says and what the angel promises Mary is going to stick with her until the very end. It's going to stick with her through some very, very silent times all the way to the cross and all the way to the empty tomb. And what we know about Mary's story, she is, the, she, is the, she is the example of unbelievable faith in silence, in difficulty, knowing that this is the only time the angels are going to come and explain what's going on. And so I want you to see what it says. Verse 26, here's how it begins. In the sixth month of, of, of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we, again, Mary's cousin who's going to give birth to John the Baptist, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a, name, a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this would be because it's just not common that angels come to you in the middle of the night. They're not always the cute little chubby baby angels you want to cuddle with. It's a little terrifying. And so it says that she's troubled in her spirit. And so in verse 30, the angel says, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. You will conceive and you'll give birth to a son. You'll call him Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called son of the most high God. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And so right off the bat, what the angel's doing, he's making a lot of bold predictions and bold promises about what's going to be taking place with this son that she's about to have. And what I love about this passage is that um, we get to come at it from a different perspective that Mary did nearly 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years after the fact, we get to read into this and we get to look back at history and realize everything that the angel is telling her at this time, no matter how absurd it sounds, it actually came true. So we get to look at it with a confidence. And my hope is that you don't read the Advent story with only our ears 2,000 years after the fact that you enter into what Mary's going through right here, the absurdity of what he may be saying. But we get to look at it and be like, hey, look, he is a faithful promise-keeping God. Like all of these things that he promised, it actually took place. She really did get pregnant even though she was a virgin. Like she really did give birth to a son. It wasn't a little girl. She really did name him Jesus, not Larry Moe, Curly, Dave, Tom, whatever it may be. Like, he really did come from the line of David, which was promised a thousand years prior to this. Like, people everywhere really have called him the son of the most high God. And it's not just here in Dallas, Texas. It's all around the world. You're going to find gatherings of worshipers all around the world that are declaring Jesus is the son of the most high God. It never died out, church. Like, it never ended. Like, other people made that claim, but their claim always ended as soon as they passed away. Jesus' claim and what the angel's predicting right here, it continued from one generation, one century after another, to the point that we've culminated here in Dallas, Texas, worshiping because he is the risen king of all kings, lord of all lords. He is the son of the most high God. Church people all around the world have considered him great, whether or not they believe that he's the son of God, exactly as the angel predicts right here. Even unbelievers say that he's great. Time Magazine said he's one of the greatest men that's ever lived. <laughs> How novel of them, right? Like he's one of the greatest men who's ever lived, right? But, 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 but it's so easy for us to absorb what the angel's saying right here. But I want you to enter into the absurdity of what Mary may be hearing in this moment. I mean, can you imagine? Like, I'm going to be pregnant even though I'm a virgin. 
Your son is going to be called son of the most high God? Doesn't every mom say, hey, this is going to be the greatest human being on the planet? Like, that's going to be true of mine. Like, he's going to sit on David's throne? We don't have a kingdom right here. He continues in verse 33, and, and the angel's kind of like, oh, yeah. Okay, like, he's also going to reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom is going to have no end. So if everything else didn't already sound absurd, like, this is the thing that's going to sound unbelievably crazy in this moment because Israel hadn't been a united kingdom in about 500 years. On top of that, there's never been a kingdom in the history of the world that's ever had no end. Every kingdom has started that way. Every kingdom had power, and people believed, hey, the Assyrians come on the scene. They're the dominant power at that time. Like, they're going to have no end. Their reign is going on and on and on. It's lasted all of my lifetime, and so it feels like it's having no end. But then what happens? The Babylonians come along, and they knock off the Assyrians. And then after that, it's the Persians. It's the Medes and the Persians. Then after that, like, it's just one thing after another. It's one thing after another. It's the Persians. It's the Greeks. It's the Romans. Everybody thought the Romans were indestructible, but they, they, they ended up falling too. And here's this silly little angel coming to a young, unwed, or she is sort of wed at this time, pregnant virgin teenager saying, hey, your son is going to have the kingdom that has absolutely no end. And so the whole thing sounds absurd at this point in time. But what I love about Mary's faith is she actually believes the angel in this moment. Even though she does ask the question that every single one of us are asking right now, she looks at him and says in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? It's pretty good. It's a healthy question to ask, right? Like, we're kind of going, like, that's great. But she goes, how is this going to be since I'm a virgin? Now, the tricky part of this question is, we know this from the story in Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, asked the angel the exact same question just a little bit earlier in this chapter about the miraculous pregnancy. Hey, you guys are really old. You're, you've been barren your whole life. You're still going to have a child. And so Zechariah looks at the angel and says, okay, how's that going to be? And you remember what happens to him. He gets judgment. He gets actually muted by God. He's not able to speak until the time of John the Baptist's birth. And so what's the difference between the way that Zechariah asks the question and the way that Mary does? Why does Mary get an explanation here when Zechariah gets judgment? I wish we had a really concrete answer. We don't have it explicitly lined out for us, but we can speculate and say that there is a difference in the way that you ask a question. There's a way to ask a question of God, even in times of silence, that comes from a place of doubt, and there's a way to ask a question of God that comes from a place of wonder and a place of faith. One, one is going to say, okay, uh, but yeah, right, we're going to be pregnant? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, no one's ever done that in the history of the world. The other can sit there and say, I'm going to be pregnant? How in the world is that going to happen? And so one is going to come from a place of unfaith, and the other is going to play, come from a place of wonder and awe, trusting in the promises of God that still has questions. And Mary's going to show us that in the Advent season, it is okay to ask questions of God. Not like Zechariah, evidently. There's a way to ask questions that comes from a place of doubt and speculation. And there's a way to ask questions, especially in times of perceived silence, when you come and you say, Father, I, I'm not hearing a whole lot. I'm not sensing a whole lot. Nevertheless, I trust in your promises. I trust in your character. But how are we going to get through this thing? I'd love to know. Like, there's a way, way to ask these questions from a place of doubt. There's a way to ask these questions from a place of faith. And Mary shows us what it looks like to walk by faith. And so the angel comes and gives her an answer. And he says this, he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. In other words, again, Jesus is not going to be like any other baby. As we talked about last week, right, a fully God and fully man, 100% divine, 100% human. 
So in one sense, yeah, he's going to be like you in every way because he is 100% human. In another sense, he's not like you in any way because he was there in the very beginning. He spoke the universe into being. He was present. He's with the Father. He's with the Son. He's with the Holy Spirit. All triune mystery working together in one essence right here. So in one sense, he is like you. In another sense, he is unlike you. And so here's the angel coming and saying, okay, that's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come and surround you. You're going to conceive and give birth to a child. And that's how, that's how it's going to happen. So he continues in verse 36, and he says, look, you need a little bit more explanation. Here it is. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And so then he reminds her of this one simple truth that is incredibly difficult for us to reconcile in moments of silence. And it's simple. It's this truth that we know we sing about all the time. We celebrate. You can answer the question on the pop quiz and get it all right every single time. But he comes and he gives her this little reminder and he simply says this. He says, Mary, there's nothing that's impossible for God. There's nothing that's impossible for God. I mean, I know this sounds improbable. I know that it's never been done before. I know that it sounds like wishful thinking. Like I know every bit of what I'm telling you, it sounds improbable, but you gotta understand, there's nothing that is impossible for God. I mean, church, like miraculous pregnancies are his thing, are they not? Like Abram and, uh, Abram and Sarah, you remember this? Rebecca and Isaac, Hannah with her son, uh, with, with Samuel. And he's going, like, now what's happening with Elizabeth, who's way past childbearing years. She's been barren her entire adult life. Like this whole thing isn't going to happen. Nevertheless, it's happening because there's nothing that's impossible for God. And granted, what this means is it doesn't mean that you're always going to get the miraculous. It doesn't mean that there's always, otherwise it ceases to be miraculous. It becomes normative at that point in time. But what this means is that if God makes a promise to church, then you can take it to the bank that he's going to see that promise through. I mean, that's what's going on here. Like, this is the God who parted the Red Sea. Why? Because he made a promise to Abraham in the beginning that he's going to multiply his family and he's going to use his family, create a nation out of his family, the Israelites, through whom he's going to bring blessing to the world. And so they're fleeing from the, from the bondage of slavery and God does the miraculous and he parts the Red Sea to fulfill a promise. He feeds them with bread and, and, and meat from heavens as they're wandering in the wilderness because he made a promise. It's the same thing with King David. King David, the, the psalmist is going to talk about this. He's going to say uh, he was faithful to deliver, to deliver him from his enemies over and over and over again because he promised him the throne. Church, this is who he is. This is the God who healed the blind and the lame simply because they came to him in faith and he saw it fit to do what they asked him to do in genuine faith, which doesn't mean you're always going to get whatever you ask him to do in genuine faith. Nevertheless, in his kindness, he comes to them and he chooses to bring healing to whatever their ailment may be. Church, this is the God that we've been celebrating who healed Gilbert Tiberius's foot when it was all set for amputation. Church, this is the God who brought healing to Elias Fincher and baby Sidney Valley. Uh, this is the God who has entered into broken marriages and breathed life into dead things over and over again. So virgin pregnancy? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's incredibly improbable, but what he's saying right here is that there is nothing that is impossible for this God. And so I want you to notice two things that he's doing right here. He's reminding her of two very simple things, his power and his promises. In the middle of this perceived silence, in the middle of all the difficulty and the different, and the different things that are about to take place, he's reminding her and he's making sure she understands that he is a God of no impossibilities 
And he is a God who has made some incredible promises in this moment. And here it is, church. If you can combine a confidence in God's power with a knowledge of his promises, then there is no amount of silence that will ever be able to crush your faith. But here's the thing. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot trust in the power of God for all these different things apart from understanding of his promises. Otherwise, it's going to lead to disillusionment. And you're going to say, like, I know that God can do these things. I know that he is the God of impossibility. He makes the impossible possible. However, I still see pain and agony and unanswered prayers all around me. Therefore, he must not love me. He must not care. Maybe he's not all powerful. And you're going to grow disillusioned and ultimately walk away from the faith. If you do not know his promises. If you do not understand he's never promised you peace and a pain-free life always. Or that he's always going to give you whatever it may be that you want. You cannot have one without the other. Otherwise, you're going to say things like, I know that you can give me a raise. I know that you can give me my dream job. I know that you can give me these things that ultimately I want. Nevertheless, they're not coming through. And so therefore, you must not be the all-powerful, all-knowing God. Church, you cannot have one without the other. You can't just cling to his power apart from his promises. And at the same time, you can't just study his promises apart from a faith in his power to fulfill them. Otherwise, you're going to be the faithless cynic who studies all the time but never actually walks by faith. And and, and church, it's always got to be both. Like there's got to be a confidence in his power as well as a knowledge of what he's promised to do. And so there's two promises right here in this text, which I'm going to argue sustain Mary's faith until the very end. The first is there in verse 28. The angel comes and says, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. I know that it's improbable. I know it's going to create problems for you because no one's going to believe this story. I know it's going to be difficult. But what you need to understand that whenever it's difficult, Whenever you feel like, hey, you would love another visit from that angel, you need to remember that I'm always, always, always going to be with you. It's the exact same thing that he tells Moses in Exodus chapter 3 when he says, fear not, Moses, I will be with you when you go and deliver my people from the bondage of slavery. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. The Lord our host is with us. It's the same thing in the New Testament, right? Just after the resurrection, the Great Commission, Jesus sends his disciples out into all the world, make bapt, uh, baptize everybody in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. And he wraps it up and he says, remember, I will be with you until the end of the age. It's Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, this side of the new covenant. And he says, our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. Right now, I will be with you. I will be with you always. And as much as you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has given you his spirit, he will never leave you nor forsake you. It's revelation when he says, I'm coming back again to be with you physically always. But the point of the matter is like at every Advent season, we come back and we remember this is who God is. He is the God who is with us. He is Emmanuel. We sing these songs and it's not just songs. He is the God who is with us, who was with us in the very beginning. He was with us when we strayed from him. He was with us in the incarnation. He is with us now in the indwelling Holy Spirit and he will be with us in the end for the rest of eternity. In other words, like we can look at this promise and we can know that even when it feels like he may be silent, even when it feels like or seems like he may be absent, the truth of the matter is he's not. We can cling to this promise and we can walk by faith rather than how we feel because we know what he says is true. Church, like think about all the benefits that we have this side of the new covenant that Mary never got to enjoy. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
He doesn't leave us. He doesn't walk away. We have his enduring word, meaning he's never silent around us. We have his voice constantly with us. Church, he has written us a book and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it is pages and pages and pages of God's voice, his affirmation, his truth, understanding about his character, how he thinks, the things that he feels, his plans for us and for his mission and his purposes throughout all of eternity, church. Like that's who he is and that's what he's done and he's given us all of that so that he can be known because he wants us to hear and have his voice. Hebrews is gonna say that it is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword having the word of God. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. In other words, when you open up the word of God, even in perceived seasons of silence, you're not just reading things about God. You are interacting through the Holy Spirit and he is learning, he is teaching you things about himself and revealing things about yourself and how these two things relate. It is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So Paul says, he says, the word of God is God-breathed. You need a word from the Lord, church, it's right there in his word. It is right, it is God-breathed. He has given us his truth right here. He says it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and the training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every single good work. But church, that's what God has given to you and to me. And here it is. The gift of his word is the assurance that his voice is never far away. So it may feel like he's silent. And it may seem like he's absent. But the truth of the matter is, he's not. And you can cling to this promise and you can know how to walk by faith, clinging to the truth of God's word in this moment. He is with us in the indwelling Holy Spirit and he is with us through his word. And so it's the exact same promise as Mary. It is unique to Mary in a very different way. But I'm gonna argue that we have a few more perks this side of the new covenant than Mary even had at that moment. Nevertheless, that was, that was powerful enough to sustain her to the end of her day. So that's the first one. He's promised that he's with us. And he will be with us until the end of the age. The second one comes in verse 30 after she's a little bit freaked out by the angelic presence in her room. The angel says, don't be afraid, Mary, because you found favor with God. It's actually the second time that he's talked about favor. First one's 28. He says, greetings, you who are highly favored. But the point of the matter is the angel doesn't simply come saying, hey, he's going to be with you. But he lets her know that God is for you too. And so it's not just that he's with you, but he's antagonistic. It's that he's with you and that he's actually for you in that moment. Which doesn't always mean, church, that it's gonna be pain-free or there's always gonna be an easy-going life. I mean, keep in mind the Advent story. The Advent story tells us that that prosperity theology that takes it way too far isn't fully accurate. Right? We understand that, that the Advent story teaches us she's still an unwed virgin, pregnant teenager with a story no one in the world is going to believe. Like she's still going to have to flee Egypt shortly after Jesus' birth because there's an evil king trying to kill her son. Like she's still going to have to endure the pain of watching her son be rejected by people that he loves, people that he was there in creation with, people that he led with, neighbors, friends, family, mocking him, lying about him. She's still going to have to watch her son be rejected and scourged in front of other people. Hanging, bloodied upon a cross, suffering and dying. 
And so clearly like, we're not talking about favor being the absence of difficulty. Nevertheless, there is still a favor for people who are found in Jesus Christ. It's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8 when he says, in all things God works together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. In other words, in God's infinite power. In other words, in the, in, in the powerful workings of the God who can do the impossible, he is able to take the terrible circumstances of our life. He is able to redeem these circumstances and turn them into something that's actually better or good in the end. He's able to take this thing which is actually evil and he's able to twist it around and do something different that is actually good. It's why he says in verse 31, what shall we say then if God is for us, who in the world could be against us? He who didn't even spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? In other words, like even though Mary's favor is incredibly unique, church, you have to understand that God's disposition to you is favorable. He is for you. He's for you. And some of us need to hear that today because in seasons of silence, moments of silence where our feelings aren't lined up with our faith and everything like that, we have to be able to cling to this promise that God is a God who is for you. He's for your good. He's for your marriage, church. He's for your family. He's for your satisfaction in him. Not apart from him, but he's for your satisfaction found in Jesus Christ. He's for your provision according to his timeline. He's for your joy in him. He's for your success and as much as it is honoring to him. Church, he is for you. Last week, I was talking with somebody here in the church, and she was telling me a fantastic story. She was just talking about the difficulty, the things that she was going on. And she, a friend of mine wrote this Advent uh, calendar book, and she ordered it. And, um, and so she received it. She opened it up on the front page. It just said, dear so-and-so, God is for you. And she just underlined it right there. And she just sat there and she said, you know, it, it, it's the most simple truth that I knew cognitively out there, but there was something happening in my soul to where I couldn't receive it in that moment. And I can't help but believe that maybe someone listening online today, someone who's here and maybe you are in that moment of silence, you know that that's true, but you're having a hard time receiving the reality that God is for you. He's not just with you in antagonism. He's for you. He wants your good and he wants your glory. Church, even in the silent years after Malachi, we have to be able to see he was never still. Even in the 400 years of silence, like he was always working faithfully for our good and for his glory all along the way. He was preparing the world for the arrival of Jesus Christ and he was setting the stage for his mission to flourish. I mean, we can look back at history and we can always see that. We can see that even in moments of silence, even in seasons of silence, church, he's never still. I mean, look at the different things that were taking place. 336 B.C., the rise of Alexander the Great. About 100 years after Malachi's ministry takes place, the Greeks are in power at that time. Alexander the Great rises to power. What does he do? He goes on a quest to Hellenize the world, which sounds horrific and barbaric. He's dominating every, other, every nation group that's out there. But one of the things that he does is he makes a decree that every nation that he, that he, um, that he overtakes must learn Greek. And the reason that that's significant is because if you and I are ever going to have a relationship, then we have to be able to speak the same language. If you and I, if I'm ever going to communicate a message to you, we have to be on the same page. We have to be able to speak a common language. In fact, if you're a missionary, you're serving overseas somewhere, one of the first things you're going to do is language school. You're going to move over to that nation, and you're going to learn their culture, you're going to learn their language so that you can speak in hopes of being able to communicate a message that will be received by these other people. And so think about what's going on. Like all of a sudden, most of the known world, which was 
previously divided up by languages and previously divided up by different rulers and things like that. It's now largely ruled by the same person and they're all learning the exact same language, Greek, which happens to be the language of the New Testament. So that's the first thing that's taken place, 346 BC, 336. Years later, about 200 years later, the Romans come and they defeat the Greeks. There's two more things that are gonna take place. The first is this, they're gonna develop an elaborate system of roads that the world has never seen before. Think about what it is like to travel. Think about the benefit that we have taking a highway to go from one place to the next. How, how quick travel opens up and how the world is, I don't know if you've ever been to a third world country. I was in Sudan a few years back. I'm not kidding, it took hours to travel probably three or four miles because there were no roads, everything's a pothole, there's no way to get around. And what that allows you to do is expand your influence, expand, expand your network. Even here in Dallas, Texas, people are gonna drive, uh, they're gonna jump on a highway and they're gonna travel 20 miles and be at a church in 30 minutes to be able to go worship with community, right? Like that's how it works, like that's the benefit of roads. And so now these, this elaborate system of roads is gonna be opened up like the world has never seen. The third thing is gonna take place in 27 BC and they're gonna declare Pax Romana, which is Latin for military peace. And that's going to last for about 200 years into the time of Christ and into the explosion of the first century church and the explosion of the gospel on the scene. But for the first time ever, people are now going to be able to travel the world through an intricate system of roads, and they're going to be able to do so with peace and not with a fear of creating war or tension with a, with a, with a rival nation. And so think about everything that's taking place in this perceived season of silence. God is doing this work, and there's now a common language that's going to connect all of mankind, mostly. There are now roads that are going to allow people to travel to and from with the good news of Jesus Christ, including Jesus is going to be able to travel some of these roads, the early apostles, the early disciples, the early missionaries. The gospel is going to be able to blow, explode on the scene, and now there's military peace that's going to allow people to travel in peace. Church, in other words, like what I'm saying, point of the matter is like even in the silence, church, he's never still. Even in the silence, when you can't see what he's doing, you can be confident that he's never still and he's always working and he's always moving for his purposes and for your good. It's like being it, it's kind of like an intermission at a play. Like you, 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 you know the curtain's closed, you have no idea what's happening behind the scene, you're out getting popcorn, but you know that like there are stagehands behind that curtain and what they're doing is setting the stage for the second act to begin. Church, it's exactly what God's doing oftentimes in these seasons of silence. And so here it is, church. Like, don't confuse his silence with absence. Don't confuse his silence with absence. Don't forget that God does some of his greatest work in these seasons of silence. Moses was 80 years old before he was prepared to go and to be the man, be the leader, be the person that God wanted to use to bring the nation of Israel out of the bondage of slavery. 80 years old. He had to live in years of agony in Egypt watching horrific things take place. He had to wander for years alone, going, God, where are you? Before he came on the scene, he said, you're ready to be used by me for my purposes and for my glory. Same thing with David. He had to spend years as a shepherd in the field long after he received the promise that he was gonna be king of Israel at that time. Long so that he could be ready to take on uh, Goliath and, and lead the people of Israel. A little while ago, I was reading a biography of William Carey, the famous missionary in India. God used centuries ago to bring tens of thousands of believers and the gospel to, the, to, to India. But his biography is fascinating because it says that he labored for seven years before he ever saw his first convert. Can you imagine what that would be like, being in a brand new country, 
Not knowing anything, laboring, laboring, being certain of the call of God for you to be there. Seven years of discouragement, seven years of no fruit, seven years of difficulty and agony before he ever sees his first convert. David Bernard, same thing, 18th century missionary, five years suffering through loneliness and massive depression before he ever saw his first convert among the Native Americans living in the Northeast. Same thing, John Hyde, 19th century missionary with the Punjab people just labored and labored and labored long for years before he ever saw any fruit of the ministry. The point of the matter, church, is like all of them experienced their most fruitful seasons of ministry after an extended season of silence. Why? Because even in seasons of silence, church, that God is never still. He's never still. He's with you in those seasons of silence. He's never going to leave you nor forsake you. And the beauty of that is that he's also for you. And he's for his glory at the exact same time. And so here it is, church. Like if you can combine a confidence in those promises with an understanding of his power, then there is no amount of silence that will ever be able to crush your faith. So here's Mary in the Advent story. And we know this. Like her life is about to get insanely complicated. The angel's going to leave and she's still going to be left as a pregnant Virgin teenage bride. No one's going to believe her story. Shortly afterwards, she's going to ride roughly 70 to 100 miles on rocky terrain, probably on the back of a donkey to Bethlehem, while very, very pregnant. Years are going to pass, and she would experience again the most unimaginable pain that any mother can possibly endure, watching her son be rejected by people that he loved, people that he was in a community with, scourged, beaten, to within inches of his life, hung on a cross unjustly with criminals, bloodied and bruised, trying to grasp for his life. She'd watch him die the most unimaginable death he can possibly imagine. She would watch the blood drip and the nails drilled into his hands and his feet. And here it is, church, she would never get another visit from the angel. She would never get an explanation why God why? I thought that you made all these promises. None of this story makes any sense to me. She would never get another explanation. She would never get another verbal word from the Lord like she got that night. But here it is, church. She had the assurance of his power, and she had all the promises in the world that she would ever need. And so she flourished in those seasons of difficulty and in those seasons of silence. She sang the most beautiful song that we have in all of the Gospels. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next week. But my hope and my prayer is that maybe if that is where you are today, season of silence, season of difficulty, whatever it may be, feels like he's a little further away when the reality is that he is with us right here, that you would see Mary's story right here, that you would cling to these promises, be assured of his power, and that you would walk by faith as Mary is able to walk by faith for the rest of her days. I love her response to Gabriel. Gabriel wraps up his proclamation and all the promises that he's making to her right there. And and all Mary says is this. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. Church, that is the declaration of faith that I'm praying some of us would cling to today. I am the Lord's servant. No matter what's going on in my life, no matter the difficulty of what's happening in my family, no matter the craziness happening in our country today. No matter the absurdity around me, I am the Lord's servant, 
May it be to me according to your word. I trust you. I know that you're with me. I know that you are for me. I know that there's nothing that's impossible for you. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me according to your word. May that be your proclamation today. Father, we do love you, God. We cling to these promises today and we say thank you that you're not, again, the unknowable, distant God. You came to us in the middle of our wandering, in the middle of our sin. You came and you rescued us. Even when we weren't even asking for rescue, God, you came to be near with us because that's who you are. You are the with us God and you are for us for some reason or another, God. We praise you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. This Advent season, we remember those truths. And Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would draw near to someone who is feeling like they're in a perceived season of silence, having a hard time connecting with you today. God, I pray that they would rest in the assurances of these promises, that they would draw near to you, understanding the presence that you've already given to us in the indwelling Holy Spirit and the beauty of having your word. God, you saw fit to make yourself known to us. May we draw near to you again. And Father, I pray that for that person today, that your voice would be loud and clear to them. God, would you strengthen them, Lord Jesus, today? God, would you strengthen them? God, would you set our feet on solid ground today that you would be praised, that you would be glorified no matter the difficulties that are happening around us? God, you are more than worthy of it all. We praise you, we remember you today, and we simply say thank you. Thank you, thank you, God. It's in Jesus' mighty and holy name that we pray. Amen.